This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This resolution that we passed today lays the groundwork for open hearings in both the Intelligence Committee and the Judiciary Committee. No person, Republican or Democrat, President or anyone else, should be permitted to jeopardize America's security and reputation. No one can be above the law, and we must enforce that. I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. There has been an argument going on about whether or not impeachment is official in the absence of a House resolution. And constitutional scholars say, yes, that the impeachment is does not need a resolution of that nature to go forward. A lot of Republicans have said no. But this is a week that became moot. The House passed an impeachment resolution. It passed it by a vote of 232 to 196. Two Democrats voted against it. One recent Republican, the now an independent, Justin Amash, voted for it. And what I'd say is important about the resolution, which we will go into in more detail, is not that it exists, but that it structures a process going forward. It is not that there has now been like a starting gun fired that had already been fired to the extent it was needed. But what Democrats did in this was they detailed and made some actually important and unusual choices in how this is going to happen. And so for all the attention that's been given to who voted for it and who voted against it and was it partisan or bipartisan, I think the important thing, the part of this that is going to be with us for the months to come and that may shape the ultimate outcome of impeachment is the actual process Democrats chose to use. So I'm joined now by my colleague, Andrew Prokop, who knows this stuff better than anybody, who's been deep in this resolution and who will walk us through what were the choices they made and how is that going to structure everything that's about to come next? Andrew Brokop, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You covered the House impeachment resolution that Democrats passed this week, and that had a lot of language structuring what we're going to see next. So can you walk me through what it actually said about the process we're about to live through? Yeah, sure. So what we've been seeing for the past month or so is a bunch of closed door depositions held by the House Intelligence Committee, a fact gathering stage of this inquiry. Um, focused on the Ukraine scandal. And what this resolution does is it lays out a move to a new stage, which will be a more public phase of the inquiry. These public hearings that are about to happen, they're going to be done by the House Intelligence Committee and uh, Chairman Adam Schiff. They've been holding the closed door hearings as well, and um, they're going to bring back some of the same witnesses they've already quizzed behind closed doors and maybe hope to get some big new witnesses as well. But we're moving a bit away from fact gathering and more towards making a public case to the American people about what actually happened here and trying to get more media attention on some of this stuff. 
And so there are a couple of interesting specific dimensions to this. And one of them is that the resolution seems to give pride of place to the Intelligence Committee rather than the Judiciary Committee. Yeah. And that is interesting because usually in past impeachment inquiries, the Judiciary Committee in the House has taken the lead. And there's a bit of backstory here, which is that all year, Chairman Jerry Nadler of the Judiciary Committee has been conducting this somewhat strange situation where he's tried to signal that he was doing an impeachment inquiry already, or um, maybe he was afraid to use those words. But there was a bizarre dynamic going on where Nadler wanted to move forward on impeachment based on the Mueller report, and Nancy Pelosi very much did not. And Nadler's committee has had some high-profile hearings this year, And the problem is that they have generally not been well-received. There was one with Corey Lewandowski last month, uh, Trump's former campaign manager, that was just widely viewed as a circus and completely ineffective. So part of this is that Pelosi seems to have more confidence in how Schiff has handled the Ukraine probe so far. And uh, it, it is a vote of confidence in him that he'll be able to conduct Uh, effective public hearings as well. In terms of what's going to happen coming next, the thing that I thought was most striking about this is that it moves away from the everybody gets five minutes approach to hearings and creates a situation where Schiff and the, the ranking Republican can each take 45 minutes to question the witnesses and can even give that time, as I understand, to a skilled lawyer. That's a quite big divergence from what we've seen before and seems a lot more useful. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I mean, members of Congress believe they have the God-given right to alternate in five-minute increments saying whatever they want at these hearings. And it seems like a minor procedural difference, but it is a pretty big deal when a congressional hearing is not, in fact, set up like that. And, you know, this is, again, something that is partially coming from that uh, pretty disastrous Corey Lewandowski hearing. At the end of that hearing last month, there was a lengthier block of time allotted for a skilled lawyer to question Lewandowski. And there were some moments where he really squirmed there. And I think that convince Democrats that, you know, if we want to be effective, trading back and forth between Democratic members and Republican members to talk about whatever the heck they want for five minutes after five minutes, it just leads to a lack of coherence uh, and inability to pursue effective follow-up questioning and more difficulty in presenting an overall narrative. So now what this resolution says is that there can be a block of up to 90 minutes, half of which would go to Schiff and half to Devin Nunes, the top Republican on the committee, and they can let a staff employee like an attorney do this questioning. And, uh, you know, that could be something very different than what we've seen so far in these hearings that have often been a bit of a mess this year. And so the the resolution also gives Devin Nunes and Republicans on the committee the ability to call and subpoena witnesses, but only with the majority support or with Schiff's sign-off. Is that correct? Yes. So, you know, Republicans have been saying they want to bring in their own witnesses. And uh, so, like you said, the resolution says that either Schiff has to agree or a vote of the committee, which is controlled by Democrats, has to agree. And Republicans have to submit in writing a detailed explanation for why those witnesses' testimonies would be relevant. 
And that's, you know, to attempt to tamp down on mischief, like summoning various people involved with, you know, the Mueller investigation or past Obama officials. It seems pretty clear that Republicans don't really want Trump administration officials to testify about this scandal because the underlying facts are bad for Trump. What they would want to do is to change the subject, go on a bunch of wild goose chases and uh, try to, um, you know, hijack this whole discussion. And there's also been talk that they would want Hunter Biden to testify, which would, uh, of course, (laughs) be a big uh, a a big political um, event. But uh, the Democrats are probably not going to want to allow that to happen. I want to ask about where the process goes from here. So what happens is that the Intelligence Committee is going to hold these hearings and then it's ultimately going to create a report that will submit to the Judiciary Committee. What what is the importance of that report? What is it? What do we know about it? So we don't know that much about it right now. It's going to sum up their findings and recommendations in some form. But what we can sort of infer is that this would be the basis for whatever articles of impeachment Democrats eventually decide to put together based on the Ukraine slash whistleblower scandal. So Pelosi has effectively put Schiff in charge of, you know, tying things up into a bow and coming up with conclusions at the end of this phase of public hearings. And that is when the handoff does occur to Jerry Nadler's Judiciary Committee. Judiciary will then review the report and likely draft articles of impeachment, eventually vote within the committee on uh, whether to approve those articles of impeachment and send them to the full House. And from there, that's when we go to a full House vote on impeaching Donald Trump. The striking thing to me about the process engaged in judiciary is that for all of the Republican complaints that there is no due process in what is actually not a criminal proceeding, There is a pretty significant role for the president and his lawyers in the process envisioned at judiciary. Can you talk a bit about that part? Yes. So the resolution says that it is when we move to the judiciary committee phase that these due process protections do fit, uh, do kick in. And Nadler released a statement giving more detail on what exactly uh, those would entail. For instance, that Trump's lawyers would receive copies of any statements of information and documents and evidence that the Judiciary Committee gets that Trump or his lawyers can attend the presentation of evidence to the committee. They can respond to it. They can attend all hearings, including those in closed session, and uh, that Trump's lawyers can question witnesses called before the Judiciary Committee. But there is an interesting wrinkle in that Nadler has implied that If Trump continues to refuse to cooperate or, in his view, obstruct this impeachment inquiry, then he might not necessarily continue to get those full protections. So it's a bit of a warning shot for Trump going forward. Um, He may have to calculate whether it would be better for him to, you know, have his legal team in there doing all this stuff and whether um, that might be worth being a bit more cooperative when it comes to documents or um, administration officials' testimony. I want to ask you one question about the politics of this, which is that 
I've heard Republicans complaining quite a bit about the process by which impeachment was taking place. Here, Lindsey Graham and others say, look, I'm not telling you the president did nothing wrong, but to have a process that is secret, that is taking place behind closed doors, that does not have a, a, a role for the president that gives him protections or like due process protections, that's something we just can't support. In many ways, the Democratic impeachment resolution seemed to have been written to respond to that, and it still didn't get any Republican votes, which suggests to me that the process issues were not really core here to the Republican problem, that we simply have a divide on Democrats who do want to have an impeachment inquiry and want to investigate these abuses by the president and Republicans who simply do not, that it is not that they want to do it their way. They just do not. They do not want this looked into. They do not want any potential accountability triggered. Does that seem like a fair reading to you or am I missing the texture of this? Yeah, it seemed obvious to me that Republicans have been reverse engineering their arguments with, you know, from the underlying principle that what they're doing is trying to protect Trump. So they're looking for whatever arguments are best suited for protecting Trump. And for a while, those were a bunch of process arguments like this, for whatever reason. It's obvious that Republican in the House don't have a philosophical objection to closed door investigations because that's how they conducted the Benghazi investigations. That's how um, Representative Mark Meadows and other conservatives conducted a closed door investigation into the Justice Department and their handling of the Russia probe uh, just last year. So, you know, it's it's a bit rich that suddenly you know, doing things behind closed doors is viewed as bad. It's a legitimate way to do an investigation, and they've done it in the past. And uh, the other thing they've been doing is demanding a vote and saying that the inquiry would be illegitimate unless there was a vote of the full House. And that wasn't true. There was no constitutional requirement or rule in the House that a vote was required to start an impeachment inquiry. And the motivation there really appeared to be that Nancy Pelosi did not want to hold this vote for a long time because it would put her Democrats who represent very Trump supporting districts, uh, a few dozen Democrats who their majority depends on, uh, it would put them in a really tough spot. So, you know, it, it was a bit politically convenient that they kept demanding, oh, hold this vote, hold this vote. At the end of the day, I think Pelosi held it because uh, she was in a position of strength at this point. A federal judge ruled last week that, you know, the inquiry was legitimate, that a vote wasn't necessary. So and the factual picture has worsened sufficiently for the president that a bunch of these Trump district Democrats didn't feel as much um, hesitance about voting to um, officially endorse this inquiry. Andrew Prokop, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Impeachment has its way of sounding like one thing, impeachment, the impeachment process. But it's actually divided into these two very distinct phases, House and Senate. And what I want to do on the show this week is look at what the House's role in impeachment is, what it has been in the past, how it has worked in the past, what is the distinct constitutional role the House plays that then structures and decides what the Senate does. I think in some ways we know more about what the Senate does, think more about what the Senate does, because that's the removal part than the House. But Everything the Senate does when the Senate actually runs that trial, it is shaped by what the House has done before. The Senate can only consider the charges the House brings to them. And so on the show this week, I wanted to have on Representative Zoe Lofgren from California. Lofgren is distinct 
in that she is the only member of Congress to have been there in the Nixon impeachment. She was an intern on the Hill and ended up actually writing one of the articles of impeachment. So she wasn't just there, but actually had a role in it. She was serving as a member of Congress during the Clinton impeachment. And she's, of course, the second most senior Democrat on the crucial Judiciary Committee now. And I've been talking to Lofgren about impeachment for years. This isn't just something that she happened to live through a couple of times, but something that has been an ongoing interest of hers. Some very key documents from the Nixon era are only available to us now because she has made them available. Uh, They're on her website. And she's somebody who takes the impeachment process, the House's role in it, with a, a, a deep sense of constitutional gravity. She doesn't approach this lightly, um, never has. Uh, I was struck during some of the interim periods here that she was much more reticent than a lot of Democrats, having lived through this before, having seen it before. She was very careful about whether or not Democrats should move to impeachment. And even as they are doing so now, and she's supportive of that, she's very thoughtful about what that process should be and what it should look like. So I wanted her on. I think she's actually a particularly um, important voice in thinking about what are we doing here and what is asked of the House of Representatives in this moment. My conversation with her is next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. (laughs) That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be on. Let's begin with the big picture. Constitutionally and procedurally, what is the House's role in impeachment? Well, the House of Representatives has the sole authority to impeach. And of course, impeachment is not removal. Impeachment is a finding or an allegation that whoever is the object of the impeachment, in this case, the president is being looked at, has committed treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And so I found that the easiest way to think about the difference between impeachment and removal is that impeachment is like bringing charges, right? That's correct. What is the difference between the decision to open an impeachment inquiry and the decision to impeach? Well, inquiry is not a word that's usually used. Everybody's using it now, but really, it's just an investigation. Right now, the Intelligence Committee is taking the lead with some assistance by the Government Oversight and the Foreign Affairs Committee to develop facts. Uh, That's really what it is, fact-finding. And um, when they've done that, they will present facts to the Judiciary Committee. Is there a difference between the kind of fact-finding and once it gets presented to Judiciary, the kind of investigation that might come through Judiciary? Is there a difference between that happening under the auspices of impeachment and the impeachment power and what would happen in the normal course of typical congressional oversight and investigation? 
Well, I mean, you could do this without ever mentioning the word impeachment at the investigation stage, legally and constitutionally. And in fact, there's been some investigation ongoing in the Judiciary Committee uh, that has now really been subsumed by the Intelligence Committee and the uh, matter with Ukraine and the president's uh, behavior there. The real issue is whether the House of Representatives will vote by a majority vote to adopt what's called articles of impeachment, basically allegations that the president has committed misconduct that meets the standard in the Constitution. Historically, that's gone through the Judiciary Committee, but every impeachment is different. As you know, I was on the committee during the Clinton impeachment, and weirdly enough, I was on the staff of Congressman Don Edwards, uh, who was on the Judiciary Committee during the Nixon impeachment. I was just a law student. I mean, I wasn't in charge of anything, although I did write one of the articles, but I had a bird's eye view for some of that as well. I love that offhand. Well, I did write one of the articles of impeachment for Richard Nixon, but, you know, no big deal. Uh, Well, I only wrote it because no one else wanted to. And John Conyers insisted that he wanted to offer it. So I I wrote it. And this was the article about the Cambodian bombing. Correct. One of the things that that's actually a good bridge to is a role the House is going to play is in deciding the articles of impeachment, what is actually in the impeachment uh, charges themselves. And the Senate is only going to have a trial on what the House decides. So how do those articles get written? How, how does the House decide which articles end up moving to the floor vote and then ultimately moving to the Senate? Well, historically, that's been uh, through the Judiciary Committee. Articles are proposed and in an open session and voted on by the members. And those that get a majority vote are forwarded to the House. It's too early to say what those articles will be. In the case of Nixon, the articles were written just, you know, the week before the actual vote in the committee. As a matter of fact, the Cambodian article was written Friday night. (laughs) But you can't do it now before all the fact-finding has been completed. And it's the case that the House can vote to clear some of the articles, but not others. If, assuming, let's say the Judiciary Committee puts forward 10 articles of impeachment against Donald Trump. The House could send three of them to the Senate and not the other seven, Yes, correct? each article uh, traditionally is voted on separately. And in the case, I remember in uh, Clinton's impeachment, some members voted for some and not for others. Of course, the Nixon impeachment never made it to the floor because he resigned after the Judiciary Committee acted. One of the things that I know is being weighed uh, in Pelosi's office and, and among Democrats in the House is that this is the first modern impeachment that will happen in a president's first term for both Nixon and Clinton. It was a second term, so they'd already faced voters for re-election. This, that would be the impeachment was going to be the last opportunity for accountability. Whereas in this case, you're going to have an impeachment process in the year of an election. So I know people are giving a lot of thought to the question of what kinds of offenses or abuses should be in impeachment and what should be left for voters. And I'm curious, because I know you've done a lot of thinking about things like high crimes and misdemeanors and the constitutional role here. What is your line between an offense that is properly left to voters in an election and offense that is properly part of the congressional impeachment process? Well, there are policy issues that are disagreements that are that should be left for the election. That's, you know, people have strong views. That's fine. That's for the voters. The other high crimes and misdemeanors is 
activity that is so extreme that it really threatens the constitutional order itself. And that's why the extraordinary remedy of impeachment and potential removal is in place, that the whole system of government is threatened by the behavior. So is something like the president's rhetoric, which has come into past impeachments like Andrew Johnson's, is something like the president's rhetoric something that voters should be deciding, whereas something like trying to change the nature of an election through getting Ukraine to intervene or other forms of political corruption? Is that the kind of dividing line you're thinking about here? Well, I mean, rhetoric could include language that, for example, threatened to undermine American foreign policy for the benefit of one's personal uh, well-being. But I think you're talking about rhetoric in terms of oratory. And I think ordinarily oratory is left for the voters unless it is part of a scheme to upend the constitutional order. One concern I've heard from people on the left, and I I know that uh, Speaker Pelosi has been discussing directly, is the idea that if something is not included in the articles of impeachment, then it almost acts as if Congress is clearing it as normal behavior. How do you you think about that? No, I, I don't think that's the case. For example, in Nixon, a lot of things that he had done was clearly improper, but not everything was put into an article. I mean, you have to hone in to the things that are understandable, that are the most urgent and uh, coherent. And so the fact that you don't have everything, and you may not learn everything also. I mean, uh, this is a very focused inquiry, to use the word. It's focusing on the president's conduct relative to whether he subsumed America's policy goals for his personal interest and whether that posed a threat to the national security of the United States, whether he failed in his oath of office, and whether it is um, a threat to the constitutional order. I want to ask you about some of the arguments we've been hearing from Republicans. One has been that the, the process so far, they say, has been secret, it's been closed door, it's been partisan. What's your view on that? Well, I'm not a member of the Intelligence Committee, But I I do note that we're following the same rules adopted by the Republicans in the last Congress. And certainly in the Judiciary Committee in the last Congress, we had plenty of closed-door depositions. And the way you do it is you have a witness. Both the Democrats and Republicans are in the room. You rotate the first hour. One party with the lawyers as well as the members ask questions at the end of that hour. It switches to the other party and the members and the lawyers ask questions and back and forth. So it's my understanding that's the process that's being used in this case. It's not anything new. And certainly in the uh, prior efforts, I I keep mentioning the Nixon impeachment because I think the Clinton impeachment fell far short of how to proceed. I mean, what the what President Clinton did was not right, but I think it's hard to say that lying about sex is going to destroy the constitutional order. I mean, it was misconduct, but didn't destroy the Constitution. In the case of Nixon, uh, there were plenty of uh, private depositions held back in the Judiciary Committee. Members of both parties were there. I mean, this is nothing new. And if I understand the way this is working correctly, so there are a couple of committees that are involved currently in the deposition process. Judiciary is not yet one. Correct. So Republicans on those committees are 
allowed into those hearings. They ask questions. But for instance, you are not. That's correct. I'm not on those co- the committees that are doing the fact finding. So when the Republicans masked outside the room saying that this was closed, it was as close to, to, to you as to them, which you can say is good or bad, but it's not a partisan thing. No, it, it, there's like 100 members that are on the three committees. Like a quarter of the Congress is permitted to participate. So to say that it's somehow wrong, I, I, I just think they're grasping at straws, really. The new procedures provide for how we're going to move into the public phase of this um, matter, uh, the transition into public hearings, how the facts are going to be transmitted to the Judiciary Committee should there be a decision to do that. So that's an important uh, next uh, next phase. Another argument you've heard from the president and, and from his allies is that what the president is getting is not due process. If he's being treated in some way worse than, the, than a common thief, he doesn't get to see his accusers, doesn't know who the whistleblower is. What's your view on that? It's not correct. In fact, what we are proposing provides more rights to President Trump than had been provided to President Clinton during the impeachment uh, effort against him. So the president's lawyer is going to be present. Certainly the Republicans are participating. I, I thought it was unfortunate that they tried to make the public believe somehow that the Republicans were not included in these depositions. They're there. They get as much time as the uh, Democrats. So There's been a somewhat confusing debate about whether or not a vote was needed to begin the impeachment process. And this week, Democrats are, are taking that vote. And I'm curious what the import of it is in your view. Well, actually... The vote really isn't to start an impeachment inquiry. I mean, uh, it references the continuation of the impeachment uh, inquiry. There's no requirement in the Constitution for a vote to start it. In fact, just last week, a um, federal district court said there's no vote necessary. This is uh, Congress decides for itself how to proceed. The establishment of how we're going to proceed is a useful thing. Um, how are the hearings going to be held? How are the how is the president's lawyer going to be able to participate? All of those things are worth um, making known. This will be the third impeachment process you've served in. So congratulations. Um, how does this feel different in terms of where the country is, or in terms of how the president is reacting? What 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 feels different to you this time? Thinking back to the. Nixon impeachment, there were certainly uh, very serious divisions on the committee uh, moving into the matter. Um, The Republicans didn't think Nixon should be impeached. The Democrats had become convinced, most of them, not all of them, that he should be. But as the proceedings went forward, and a lot of their time was spent not just in depositions, I'll never forget the look on Herb Kalmbach's face when he was about to go into a deposition, like, how did I end up here? But listening to the tapes had a huge impact on the committee. And, uh, you know, it was before the digital era, and they they would, I didn't get to because I was just a law student, but uh, they would go in and with the headphones and listening, and it was a brutal eye-opening experience, and it did change people's minds. And then the final 
admission that everything Nixon had denied was in fact true was the end of the road for them. The difference here is the Republicans weren't in favor of it, but there was a level of dignity that was present. We've had some very outrageous behavior from some members that we just you never saw in the 70s. It's sort of a clown show type of thing. And that's very destructive. I mean, this is serious. I, we don't know for sure if the president will be impeached. We don't yet know for sure if there will be articles of impeachment. We're, we're not there yet. We're in the fact-finding stage. But we should take this seriously because it's about our oath of office to defend the Constitution. It's about preserving the democracy uh, that our country has uh, enjoyed for over 200 years. And, and we should approach this with gravity, with a sense of responsibility, with dignity, and honestly with a sense of sorrow that it should come to this is not a, a, a cause for joy. It shouldn't be for anyone. I've been thinking recently about what would have happened if the Nixon impeachment had played out in this Congress, in this media era, in this context. And I'm curious if you have any reflections or suspicions about that. Well, it's hard to imagine uh, in some ways. But, you know, Nixon had his defenders, but they, uh, they approached this with a tremendous dignity. And they also were willing to look at the facts. They didn't create their own world. Some of what I hear in the media and repeated by elected officials is like an alternate reality. And you didn't really see that in the, in the Nixon uh, matter. You saw people who were devoted to President Nixon, who believed in him, who believed in his policies, who didn't believe that he had been uh, guilty of the things that uh, you know he was accused of, and yet when the facts came out, they were able to accept that there was a reality that they had been lied to. I'll never forget the look on Chuck Wiggins' face. I mean, one of the most vigorous defenders of President Nixon, the look on his face when he realized that Nixon had lied to him because there was no other... He, I mean, there wasn't a, cre a creation that the that black was white and up is down. It was like, this is the truth. So uh, there's a something of a different environment today. That's one of the questions I have, if this environment is different fundamentally or just feels different. Because as you say, at the beginning of Nixon, which came at a different time and it was a less polarized Congress, but he had defenders, things felt stuck, and over time people moved. And one thing I, I wonder when you look around at your colleagues is, do you think that people have still in this era the capacity for movement, that there are revelations and changes that would make people who are in one place now be in another place five months from now? I, I think it is possible. Uh, despite popular belief, we do talk to each other across the aisle. And I've certainly heard Republican members say, you know, if it were X and Y, then we'd have to do something. So it's really a question of what do the facts show and do, and do people accept the facts? There, Obviously, the leadership is trying as much as they can to protect a president of their party. I understand that. But the real question is, can we look at fact-finding 
have a level of confidence as to what the facts are, and then proceed uh, based on those facts. Is there anything I should have asked you here that I didn't, that you wish people knew about the process or you think they misunderstand that maybe I didn't think of or we didn't cover? Well, I just think oftentimes the debate gets framed by the people who are loudest on TV. There's a whole group of Congress that I think is looking to see what are the facts and what needs to be done. And I also think that uh, citizens' voices should be heard. As you watch the evidence and have an opinion, you should express it to your elected representative in an orderly and cordial way. I, I think there's too much acrimony about this. This is a tough time for the country. This is a hard thing for all of us. It's a stress test for our democracy. And there are very high stakes. So I think each one of us, whether we're participating in this in these events as members of Congress or whether we're participating in these events as citizens and voters, ought to be aware of the gravity and the solemnity with which this question should be approached and take our responsibilities seriously in, in a very orderly and dignified way. Congressman Zell Lofgren, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you to Representative Lofgren for being here. There are two things that, that really struck me in the House's impeachment vote this week. The first was the implicit theory of presidential accountability, or honestly, lack of presidential accountability being put forward by the Republicans. As the Democrats don't tire of pointing out, this is not impeachment. It's an impeachment inquiry. The vote was taken to have open hearings, which is what Republicans said they wanted, with eventually some due process for the president, which is what Republicans said they wanted to investigate and weigh what the president has done here. And nobody doubts that the president did it. The president has admitted that he's done it. So the question now is simply the effort to look at it. And I was reading the Republican statements on this and listening to Republicans say that to launch an impeachment process is to betray the will of the voters. But of course, it's constitutional. And of course, Donald Trump did not win the most votes. So it's a very strange thing for constitutional conservatives to argue. I listened to Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, say that this is not only an attempt, and I'm quoting him here, not only an attempt to undo the last election, it's an attempt to influence the next one as well. Well, you know what else was an attempt to influence the next election? As a principle, there's so little here. I watched as Republican after Republican said this was all launched off of a whistleblower. We didn't even know who the whistleblower was. And the whistleblower didn't even have firsthand knowledge of what happened. But now we have firsthand knowledge of what happened. Donald Trump has admitted what happened. The White House released a record of what happened. We've had testimony after testimony of what happened. This system doesn't work if we can't hold executives accountable. It doesn't work if a party decides that there can be no accountability, just in concept, there can be no accountability. There can't even be the process that might lead you to accountability because it'd be politically damaging or for them, politically dangerous to accept it. We have a representative system so that there are representatives who can do things that are harder in the moment than what would be done otherwise. I mean, that's the whole point, right? To have a little bit of insulation. So in theory, the best of us who we pick to send to Washington Right. The, the, these people we choose to channel our beliefs and values and hopes will deliberate and think about it 
and weighing seriously their constitutional duties, do what is best for the country in the long term, and then go explain it to the voters when the time comes. And the absolute collapse of any of the representative responsibility on the right has been, I don't want to call it shocking because in some ways I'm not surprised, but I feel like I end up giving this read every week, but it is dangerous. It's not how it's supposed to work. And to see not one Republican except for Amash vote for this, to just vote to have the inquiry. I saw Bill Kristol say that he was calling around and a lot of Republicans assured him, House Republicans assured him, that they just saw this vote as an easy vote. That if it comes to it, if it gets bad enough, that they're holding their moment of responsibility, of courage for the vote on impeachment itself. Maybe, maybe. But if you're not willing to do the easier things, you're not going to be willing to do the hard things. And what I see right now is a process where one party has completely abdicated constitutional responsibility, where they said that what they wanted was a process where this could be done in the open, in a fair way. They were given that process and they just don't want it done at all. They just don't want any effort at all to find out what Trump has done here or hold him accountable for it. It's a dangerous thing in the system. I guess the other thing that struck me this week, Nancy Pelosi has taken a lot of fire for a long time. Um, people felt that she did not move quick enough on impeachment after the Mueller report, uh, did not move on it at all, in fact. This goes back a, a quite a ways, too. In 2006, when Democrats took back the House, there was a lot of pressure on Pelosi to impeach George W. Bush over uh, what he said about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and she refused to do it then, too. I remember being at a reporter's roundtable with Nancy Pelosi years ago, and I remember her saying that her philosophy of legislating was simple. She said that things in Washington were like milk, that if you left them out for too long, they spoiled, that everything was about timing. And for some reason, it's always been very burned in my memory. And so she raised one fist in the air and she said, the key is what you do is you get the votes. And then she slapped her fist into her other hand and she said, and you take the vote. On the morning of this vote, Kellyanne Conway went on Fox and Friends and she said, the secret is that Nancy Pelosi doesn't have the votes. As is so often the case, Kellen Conway just lies, right? Just like went on Fox and Friends, an allied show, and just said something that was clearly untrue. But it is the worst thing in Washington to try to bet that Nancy Pelosi has not counted the vote. She's a single best vote counter who's probably ever served in speakership. And what's striking here is that in waiting, Pelosi has allowed Trump to wind himself into a much worse position than he ever would have been in before. The tricky thing about the Mueller report, as I argued at the time, is that it did not prove collusion. It did not prove its central claim of what Donald Trump had done wrong. It did show obstruction, but not collusion. That evidence was not there in the report, not sufficiently. But here he did it. He's admitted it himself. The people around him have admitted it. And so now the underlying facts are strong enough that the Democrats are united, that the polling is moved where impeachment is more popular than not impeaching. and. Then, after Republicans spent weeks baiting Pelosi to take a vote that they didn't think she had the votes for, she waited. She waited them out. She waited till every successive revelation had unified the Democratic caucus, and she took the vote, and she won the vote. Republicans keep saying it was partisan, but it's partisan not because of the process isn't what should be a bipartisan process, but it's partisan because they have refused to participate. It is an amazing quality of chutzpah to create a partisan process yourself and then use its partisanship, use the fact that it's not bipartisan as an attack you launch on it. But I think there's going to be plenty of chutzpah to go around here. 
That is our show this week. One thing I want to experiment with uh, now is continuing the conversation uh, midweek uh, when the show is not on. So I asked a question to Lofgren about what is the dividing line? What is the way you decide a presidential offense that should be added to an impeachment article versus one that should be left to the voters? And I'm curious what you think the divided line is. So tweet it to us at hashtag impeachment explained what you think is a standard by which something should become an article of impeachment versus being left for the voters to decide. Tweet it to us at hashtag impeachment explained. Impeachment Explained is hosted by me, Ezra Klein. It's produced and edited by Jeff Geld, researched by Roger Karma, engineered by Malachi Brodus and Topher Ruth. Our theme music is composed by John Natchez. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. We'll be back next week. Music.